Welcome to Bible News Press. Our goal is to discuss biblical faith beyond cliches and buzzwords, whether such words are religious or political. Sometimes we sit around the table and fellowship. Sometimes we do a little time travel. It is all part of our journey with our Abba Father, who has given us the key to life. We do it with Jesus, and we do it together. Welcome. Hello, I'm Laura. I will be reading Acts chapter 22 from the World English Bible. Brothers and fathers, listen to the defense which I now make to you. When they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they were even more quiet. He said, I am indeed a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, instructed according to the strict tradition of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, even as you all are today. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. As also the high priest and all the council of the elders testify, from whom also I received letters to the brothers and traveled to Damascus to bring them also who were there to Jerusalem in bonds to be punished. As I made my journey and came close to Damascus, about noon, suddenly a great light shone around me from the sky. I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I answered, Who are you, Lord? He said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you persecute. Those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they didn't understand the voice of him who spoke to me. I said, What shall I do, Lord? The Lord said to me, Arise and go into Damascus. There you will be told about all the things which are appointed for you to do. When I couldn't see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came into Damascus. One Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well reported of by all the Jews who lived in Damascus, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. In that very hour I looked up at him. He said, The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth, for you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. Now why do you wait? Arise, be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. When I had returned to Jerusalem and while I prayed in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Hurry and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not receive testimony concerning me from you. I said, Lord, they themselves know that I imprisoned and beat in every synagogue those who believed in you. When the blood of Stephen, your witness, was shed, I also was standing by, consenting to his death and guarding the cloaks of those who killed him. He said to me, Depart, for I will send you out far from here to the Gentiles. They listened to him until he said that. Then they lifted up their voice and said, Rid the earth of this fellow, for he isn't fit to live. As they cried out, threw off their cloaks, and threw dust into the air, the commanding officer commanded him to be brought into the barracks, ordering him to be examined by scourging, that he might know for what crime they shouted against him like that. 
When they had tied him up with thongs, Paul asked the centurion who stood by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and not found guilty? When the centurion heard it, he went to the commanding officer and told him, Watch what you are about to do, for this man is a Roman. The commanding officer came and asked him, Tell me, are you a Roman? He said, Yes. The commanding officer answered, I bought my citizenship for a great price. Paul said, But I was born a Roman. Immediately those who were about to examine him departed from him, and the commanding officer also was afraid when he realized that he was a Roman because he had bound him. But on the next day, desiring to know the truth about why he was accused by the Jews, he freed him from the bonds and commanded the chief priests and all the council to come together and brought Paul down and set him before them. That is the end of chapter 22. When our local group of Christians met for fellowship this past Sunday, in our discussion of this chapter, someone brought up how cosmopolitan Paul is compared to the original Twelve Apostles. You'll recall people mentioning how uneducated those twelve were and how amazing it was that they could speak how they did. But Paul is educated. He's born a Roman citizen. He was trained by a well-known Pharisee, per verse 3 here. He is from a significant city. That's in chapter 21, verse 39. And he even had a position of power and authority prior to being born again, as he outlines in verse 5, that it was to the point of being able to condemn others to death in verse 4. He speaks at least two languages, as is mentioned in chapter 21, verse 37. The, at least the commander seems surprised that he speaks Greek. And then here in the beginning of chapter 22, he's speaking Hebrew. And Paul has no problem speaking in front of large audiences. In this speech here, he highlights his Jewish heritage and training, which might be boasting if not done carefully. But here they are given as important credentials for his listeners. He is identifying with the crowd in their zeal in a positive tone, indicating that such zeal is a reasonable place to start. But then he proceeds to explain how his zeal was redirected. And this harkens back to Proverbs 19.2, where it says, Even zeal is not good without knowledge, and the one who acts hastily sins. Paul also refers to this in Romans 10, 2, where he says, quote, I can testify about them that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, end quote. And about himself in Galatians 1.14, when he is again giving his history and saying that he had zeal without knowledge. But here in the speech, after he goes through his credentials, he shifts to telling the amazing account of hearing from Jesus as he was on his way to Damascus. This is the second of three times that this account is given in detail in Acts, and this repetition solidifies the veracity of what on first hearing seems like a strange and possibly unlikely tale. In the first telling in Acts 9, it is told in the third person by Luke, but here Luke is quoting Paul in the first person, and Paul says, in essence, the light was very overpowering, and Paul, who was still referred to as Saul then, fell to the ground. I was intrigued by the doubling of Saul's name here. First, I recalled that this was similar to other places in Scripture, and the first place that came to mind was in dealing with young Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 3, verses 1-10. through 10. 
Then I did some research and found an article listing 10 times in the scriptures where names are doubled. The author states that these are the 10 times where this is done, but I didn't do further research to verify that. The list is thought-provoking, and here it is in summary. Number one, Abraham in Genesis 22, verses 11 through 13. Number two, Jacob, Genesis 46, verses 1 through 4. Three, Moses, Exodus 3, 1 through 10. Four, Samuel, 1 Samuel 3, 1 through 10. Now, I'll stop right there and say, obviously, we recognize all of them as major figures in the biblical account. The fifth one is the only one who is a woman, and it is Martha from Luke 10, 38 through 42. Right here, I want to just take a break in the list and tell you a personal story of how this verse ministered to me in the recent past. In June, for nearly the whole month of June, my husband was semi-stranded in the Caribbean ocean on a halfway working boat. Our daughter, one of our daughters, was about to give birth to her first child, and our dog was ready to give birth to her first litter of puppies at a rather advanced age for a dog. She's age seven. And so I was home alone with this, and I was worrying. Now, I'm not going to claim anything that I don't know for absolutely sure, but what I can tell you is that the phrase, Martha, you are worried about many things, came very forcefully to my mind. And it came forcefully to my mind several times during the day as I struggled with praying and trying to trust God with the circumstances in my life. And Although I felt it as a bit of a reprimand, I felt it as the gentle reprimand that it seems to be to Martha in the scripture, and I felt myself laughing at myself because of where I was in my struggles with all of this, and I thought, okay, what's the rest of the story? Well, the rest of the story is that Mary was being commended for being at Jesus' feet, so I tried to sit at Jesus's feet and in get into his word differently, obviously asking for his help in doing that because I can't do it on my own human power. For many years, I have been convicted that worrying is similar to complaining, and it's a version of not trusting God, and so it really is a sin. But still, God was patient with me, and that day, with that forceful but gentle reminder over and over. It really was a breakthrough for me with all that was happening. So let's get on to number six here. Now, this was Peter, who in the instance in Luke 22, verses 31 through 32, was referred to by his given name of Simon by Jesus when he was told that Satan had asked to sift him like wheat. Then number seven is this in Acts, where um, all three times that this story is mentioned. The repeating of the name is mentioned, so that seems to be a significant fact. Then number eight is the only sort of negative use of this, and this is where Jesus in Matthew 7, 21 through 22, and Luke 6, 46 is talking about people who use his name, who say, Lord, Lord, did we not do these things? And he says, no. Number nine is when Jesus is on the cross, and he says, Eloi, Eloi, And he is quoting the first lines of Psalm 22. And you can find that recounted in Matthew 27, 46 and Mark 15, 34. And then the 10th time that there is a doubling of names is Jerusalem, the only city it's done to. And it 
it's not surprising that it's Jerusalem, which is the city of God and represents many things in the Bible. And you can read that in Matthew 23, 37 and Luke 13, 34. So I thought this was an interesting side study that this is not just a casual redundancy or like God is speaking until he can think of what to say next. This is attention getting, clarifying that they should pay attention, and it's full of feeling. Just as Jesus's next words to Saul are also meant to cut to the core of the issue and through Saul's hardened heart, why are you persecuting me? In his first response in verse 8, Saul may seem uncertain on some level, but he also recognizes that he is being addressed by someone of great power as his use of the word Lord indicates. According to Strong's, a ti- this is a title of great respect and reverence. Can you imagine his horror at learning that Jesus, whose followers he had been hunting down to their death, was the God talking to him? After the interlude of mentioning that no one else understood the voice, Saul asks the only reasonable question, which implies, I can see that you haven't struck me dead, so in recognition of this inconvenient truth and your power, what now? In verse 10, Saul had to feel the strangest mix of relief and unexpected purpose known to man. He is going to be given very specific instruction about work that God has for him. He, Saul, who was attempting in self-righteous zeal to please God, will now actually be appointed to do things that are pleasing to God. Note that not all of Saul's instructions come straight to Saul from God. Per verse 12, God uses Ananias to prophesy to Saul to heal him. He also tells Saul to get his act together. Don't wait. Choose to call on the the name of the Lord and accept salvation. This includes the public declaration of baptism. Saul may have had a specific role, but he is still part of the body of Christ, as this shows us, and God begins weaving him in right away. Here, Paul also highlights that Ananias was a devout man according to the law. Ananias was a man this crowd should respect. Then in verse 14, we see that Ananias says that Saul will see Jesus, which Paul, once his name is changed, also says in 1 Corinthians 9.1 and 1 Corinthians 15.8 that this happened. In Acts 22, verse 17 through 21, We have a section where the Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown commentary says this is the only place that Paul is told to quickly leave Jerusalem. He went there in verse 17. And this seems a little bit risky because Jerusalem is where he is now, where they're getting ready to kill him, and he's relating a prophecy, sort of like saying, you don't want to be like this. But God had said at that point, when Paul questioned him a little, trying to say, but they should see that I am changed. But God replied, depart, for I will send you to the Gentiles. And that's where the mob refuses to listen. They will not hear that God is reaching out to Gentiles. They still want to cling to their misunderstanding of being God's chosen people, and they go back to calling for his death. When I read verse 23, I got to thinking more about this tearing of clothes and throwing dust in the air and rage because it's not something we see in our culture, and it sounds really destructive unnecessarily, especially for people who have limited clothing, and it sounds really dirty. There are different um, references to this in the Bible. I looked up 
in Genesis 37, 29, it talks about Reuben doing this when he finds that Joseph has been sold. And then also in verse 34 of that same chapter, Jacob, when he hears what he thinks has happened to Joseph. In Job chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, that's how Job responds to his grievous situation. And Joshua does this in Joshua 7, 6. David does this in 2 Samuel 1, 11 through 12. And then specifically, the priests are not allowed to do this as it specifies in Leviticus 21, 10. And an interesting comparison is Joel 2.13, where God tells the people that they should rend their hearts instead of just their garments, along the lines of when he says, circumcise your hearts and not just go through the ritual. Sackcloth and ashes is mentioned by Mordecai in Esther 4.1, and the people of Nineveh repent with sackcloth and ashes in Jonah 3 verses 5 through 7. Sackcloth and ashes are mentioned in Nehemiah 9.1 and in Daniel 9.3. Most of these references that I gave are genuine acts or calls to genuine repentance, but the problem here in Acts 22 is that it is not being done according to God's perspective, and they should go back and read Joel 2.13. Verse 24 shows that not much has really changed in interrogation by torture. The commander defaults to scourging, thinking apparently that it is useful and necessary to get Paul to tell him why everyone is mad at him. Nothing like guilty until proven innocent. I wonder if the commander understood Hebrew or if he just didn't know enough about the religious tensions, because if he had been able to hear the speech, it seems like he would have understood a little bit more. In verse 25, of course, we can't hear Paul's tone of voice, but his question comes across to me as almost casual. He seems to know the potential impact of his question because it does strike fear into the heart of both the centurion and the commander. And verse 29 is kind of comical. The men who had been ready to carry out the order of scourging just immediately melt away. There was no way they wanted to be associated with this now. Verse 26 shows the centurion's respectful approach to the commander. He gives a word of warning without condemning or confronting the authority, and this reminds me of the centurion who had the best understanding of Jesus' authority in Matthew 8.8. Then we find out the status Paul has being born a Roman citizen. Even the commander did not have that. One person in our Time of Discussion Sunday pointed out how the people of the government think they are in charge, but God is the one who knows and sees all, and he plays their system to protect Paul throughout this. Paul will not die that day. He is willing to suffer and die for his faith, but he won't do it unnecessarily, as is shown by him playing the Roman citizen card. Now, the commander is still responsible for controlling the mob, and Paul seems to be the cause. So now the commander moves on to asking the Jewish religious leaders what is going on. That's all for today. Thanks for listening. That is the Bible News Press segment for today, but not the end of our journey. 